totally going to have to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode about language. All right. Sorry. Awesome. That is my traditional pre-Thanksgiving factoid. So that when parents and grandparents ask, what are you learning in school? That's what they can tell them. <laughs> I have the urge to run to the bathroom and check, but that would probably be something I could do later. Yeah, yeah, no, that was also one of the disclaimers, like, do not check now. <laughs> Please do not check now. Hey, everyone, I'm Kara. I'm Chris. We're the Sausage of Science. Welcome back. Yeah, we just got, both of us just got back from the triple A's. I got back on Saturday. And I feel like I just crawled in. <laughs> but I got back last night. This year in California, the wildfires are still going crazy. And I feel deeply for all the lost families and loved ones and pets and homes and the number of missing just keeps climbing and climbing. Also, all props go into the forensic anthropologists who had planned on coming out to the conference and then just left for Chico to help identify bodies at this point. That's dedication to, to humanity as well as to your craft. It's amazing. Yeah, I know for one, Melanie Beasley, who is the uh, student member of the BioAnt section, sent her regrets that she couldn't attend for one. Not, not to name drop anyone in particular, because there are lots of people who yeah. were contributing their efforts to, to that. And walk yeah. my dog. Walk your dog. I got to come back to half of my department flooded, which was exciting. Always good. <laughs> our guest, everyone, our guest today is uh, Shay Akil, who is a graduate student at um, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And uh, so he's just the wonderful look on his face when I said <laughs> my department was flooded. So I'm currently oh, dealing with a mix of mildew smell and cleaning solution smell, but my lab and office were untouched. That's what matters. I came back from a trip where my whole house was like the inside of a tennis ball with mold a few years ago. So I feel you. And at least you don't oh. live there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, the humidity in the South is a real thing. Because oh, it's like between that and thinking about what's been going on with the, the issues with the firefighters and labor, because the majority of them are prisoners. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so we just going to be like, yay, feminist wage slavery. There's women prisoners who are firefighters. No, like, can't be firefighters when they get out of jail. So many people don't know that, that it is yeah. slave labor. They do the amazing labor. work and they get paid like $2 an hour and then they cannot then go on to be firefighters. And it's so incredibly dangerous. So yeah, incredibly it's dangerous, dangerous work, yeah. Anyway, shall we actually get to our interview? So, Shay Akil, you are a graduate student and you definitely have an interesting route in becoming a graduate student. But before we get to that route, would you mind telling us kind of your own origin story within anthropology, human biology, what made you want to pursue it? And when did you decide to pursue it? Well, since I was a little kid, I was always really, really interested in biology. I was fascinated by it, like in every sense of the way, in term. Like I was always, had my head in a book, always outside trying to figure out like what plants I was dealing with in the backyard or what bug it was. I was constantly interested in animals. But once I got around the age of like, 10 and you know after a while I was surrounded by older black women and stuff who were babysitting me and stuff and watching like 
murder mystery shows and everything and forensic anthropology stuff. And that's how I originally got interested in biological mm. anthropology. Mm. And it was funny. It's funny because when I went to undergrad, I came in as a biomed major and I was bored. Mm. I was not in any way, like my grades were fine. I just wasn't interested. <laughs> I thought it was boring. I was like, there is so much more that's here that isn't actually being touched on in the course material. I can't relate to it. Like I, and it was funny, I, I ended up in anthro, like I had remembered like forensic anthropology to some vague sense, but I ended up in anthro because I took a world civilization requirement. It was a, a gen ed class. I took it with Dr. Warren Barber, who's an archeologist. And I changed my major that semester. <laughs> so that's how I ended up a biological anthropologist. By that's, taking a class with an archaeologist. <laughs> so was that also the same time where you're like, I want to pursue this as a career? Or was that more just the that, same? That was, that was around the time where I was like, I want to pursue this as a career. Okay. Like, I want to do this. I want to do this kind of work. Very awesome. So, yeah. So then, I guess, tell us a little bit about what it is you focus on. What, as, as a graduate student, you're getting ready to defend your proposal or the, the soft yeah. defense, as you will. Yeah. What is it all about? So my dissertation project particularly is looking at the racialization of biology. So to kind of like understand what I mean by that, I'm referring to the ways in which we understand race as well as biology, the relationships they have to one another, and the scientific critique of race. So as we all know, we still struggle constantly with trying to make sense of defining race in the first place saying what it is rather than allowing it to constantly be synonymous with so many other things. And like, and that's a struggle in, in biological anthropology. It's across disciplines. It's, it's in sociology, it's in biomedical like research and studies of race and genetics. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is, well, if race is a social construct, how and why? Those are not well demonstrated in our critique. They're completely missing from the conversation yep. and discussion. Yep. We're just, to, we tell people race is not biology. And don't mention biology because that's racist. And then we tell them that that's enough to go off of. Mm -hmm. Humans are curious. They gonna want more information. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that the actual history of race is significant to making sense of not only what it is, what it does, what it's capable of doing, and its relationship to biology as a discipline and also biological phenomena. So I became really, really, really interested in understanding that in between undergrad and doing my first master's thesis and studying, because I, I did it on a project looking at the relationship between poverty and food deserts and dental disease in Buffalo, New York. So my main interest is trying to figure out, well, how can we talk about genetics and biology without being racist? We currently do not have a model. We reproduce like different racial, uh, like racialized distinctions and racial topologies through the ways that we discuss human genetics, different populations and regions on a regular basis. It's embedded in the way we produce knowledge mm -hmm. as well as the way we interact with each other because we're socialized into engaging in that kind of discourse. So what I'm attempting to do is provide a historical analysis of the social constructions of race mm -hmm. by looking at an eventful dynamic and a timeline to see what was also happening to populations, to peoples over those times, through those dynamics, and then bringing it up to a discussion of contemporary human genetics and really fleshing out the, the problems with respect to the population genetics issues on the end of scientific critique of race because we still go to our, our good old reliable statement is there are more genetic differences within groups than there are between them. 
<laughs> this is as a result of isolation and distance. Like the very, the good the good old clip. Well, that's a serious problem because that's not what's happening in contemporary human populations. That's not what's going on at all. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> Anybody who's reading knows that. So why do we keep relying on that statement? Mm-hmm. Not to mention so much of the scientific critique is more of a critique of the shortcomings of statistics than they actually are critiques of the analysis of human genetic variation. So one of the things I'm really, really interested in is looking at doing a series of analyses that also include temporal dynamics and like, a di- like can also include not the dynamic history and interactions of different people over time. So I'm really interested in displaying racial thinking alongside phylogenetic thinking, alongside like a coalescent view, these understandings of not just our ancestors, but the ancestors of our genes, like really having an evolutionary conversation about it because there's no evolutionary theory in the contemporary scientific critique of race. There's none. So let me, let me interject and and ask you, it's not in the list of questions you sent, but it's directly from the piece that you sent us that, Mm -hmm. that we had the opportunity to read and review. So the piece that's coming out or it's out, in American yes. Anthropologist yeah. called Social Problems, Structural Issues, and Unsettling Science. You talk a little bit about this. You mentioned the FST values that get consistently referenced, and then the social construction issues and the real-life implications for how people treat each other based yeah. on race. So where do you stand, or what do you see as the tension between those F values and how race is actually being employed? and actually has biological impacts based on that use. Well, that's one of the things that I think the best way to understand it is to, as a way to like a window to go through, I would mention two papers. Clarence Gravely at all 2009, the paper he did on racialization and its correlation with high blood pressure Mm -hmm. in Puerto Ricans. And that was an excellent application of another piece, another paper, uh, Jada Ventores, Ventores and Colon. I'm trying to remember the year but the one on racialization as an experience, mm-hmm. like race, race at like racialized position as an experience. That's literally what it is. How I'm racialized is how people are then socialized to understand how they are supposed to treat me once they come to interact with me. Yep. So we are able to then understand that this is a series of an environment that is then completely built around individuals that also has a set of different probabilities and likelihoods. We can make inferences based off of history and the information we just have on an everyday basis of the likelihood of somebody causing someone harm, Mm -hmm. reducing the amount of resources they can get access to, which has material consequences, trying to come to understand that. So the relationship is not something that is necessarily of a a biological origin, no, but it has biological consequences. Not of an evolutionary origin, right? Yeah, exactly. the The notion of a biological origin in the first place of the one thing in a direct sense is a very Mendelian articulation and understanding of what it is. Because that's generally the argument, is race biological? Is race biological in origin? It's the idea that something that, uh, that is, one, that is a, a culmination of complex interactions can be the result of one particular phenomenon. Because that's the racial or typological view in the platonic or essentialist sense we're talking about something that's like, is one gene. The understanding is one gene or is one thing. There's yeah. one characteristic that brings it all out. So I'm getting excited. So forgive me, Kara, if I'm stepping all over your questions. 
Jim Binden was an anthropologist here at Alabama who taught a class on race. And I inherited his job, as it were. And when he lectures, guest lectures for me, the point he makes, which was profound to me, was that we constantly see race as a social construct in psychology texts, in sociology texts at all, but we rarely see the follow-up explanation of then why we still continue to use it as a categorical model and why we continue in medicine to draw these associations that are biological between race. And in anthropology, what we've been trying to do is to tease that out. And it sounds like that's the direction you're headed. And I'm super excited by that because that was a profound insight for me because there's a lot of confusion about that. Yeah, there is. And so my question is, because I don't have the, the background in population genetics to, to understand what the implications are for this, but with our emerging knowledge of epigenetics and what you're saying is it's not a unitary Mendelian thing, is there potential that what we're doing, the way we're treating each other, does have biological consequences that extend in epigenetic ways? Are we reifying the race concept in ways that do have implications that we believe could be distinct or at least would show some type of pattern. So like this, this, and this is one of the, I I would say the central question of my project is how do genes become associated with race in the first place? I think that's one of the first questions we have to ask after we ask what race is. (laughs) Like (laughs) we first have to figure out what it is. Yeah. And then like understand its ideology, its history, and then how it perpetuates and continues itself as a process. And then we and then we can ask how does that become associated with genes? Mm. And one of the things that I was thinking about, and this is something I have heard on a number of occasions, that if race is not biological, at what point do the biological consequences of race also create chasms or different forms of like isolation, mm-hmm. right? Between different groups. And that's one of the things I've taken into consideration and thinking about as well. And I think that the best one of the, the things that helps the most population genetics, that it allows, when it's actually interjected into discussions of race, it allows you to kind of like think about the fact that, well, the assumption that is generally being made is that racialization, that racialization in the sense of biology and genetics, that some subgroup, particular type of distinct subgroup is going to be separated and eventually not going to mate with other groups over time. Mm-hmm. that could ultimately lead to speciation. That discussion and that category in the first place makes a series of assumptions for reasons that have nothing to do with the biology of those organisms. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the thing that I think is significant. The other part of the, like a part component of the critique that we're missing in biological anthropology and in natural sciences, it's the hist- understanding the history and the functions and how race works and operates mm-hmm. in the first place. Race wasn't created as a set of categories to help us make distinctions between speciating organisms. It was actually created to help people make money. Mm-hmm. Being able to distinguish that is significant. That because, why? Because of the fact that, guess what? When people go and do one, take one action, they don't usually expect for it to end up having consequences all the way down the line, not necessarily, but its original function, that's not necessarily what it was. It wasn't to help us understand these different components of the uh, different forms of life 
the understanding of difference with respect to race and difference with respect to evolutionary genetics, completely different. Variation is the stuff of life. Variation is a problem in race. Difference is a problem. So that's one of the things I think is extremely significant that we actually, we are dealing with two completely separate things, but they definitely, there's going to be consequences. But I think the, that question, really what we're, what we're seeing as a consequence is that there's a sense of reification with respect to quality of life. Mm. We're seeing it in racial health disparities, yep. right? Those racial patterns are a consequence of quality of life. We see it in with regards to even looking at socioeconomic status because racialization is a particular form of also stratifying the wage market. Mm-hmm. You can stratify wages quite easily through gender and sex than race. You'd be good. <laughs> but, that's, and that's practically what drives it. So and that, those are things that I take into consideration. Yeah. So as a result, these things are indirectly as well as directly constructing entire environments in which organisms are living. But we're making environments for each other. Our interactions helps recreate the world every single day. Mm. So those are the things that I take into consideration. So the idea of are we making new forms of group itness? Despite all of that, you don't even see any notion of those, of those kind of notions of group, of racialized or homogenous groups. You don't see them in contemporary human populations and groups. Like if we actually looked at contemporary human populations in the United States, in different, in different areas and cities, we're not going to get isolation by distance as a result. We're not going to get some notion of homogeneity. That's not even, the, that's not even something that evolutionary genetics is even interested in in trying to address. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things I take into consideration because those, those fears are realistic because those are the fears that I had when I originally started doing this work. I was terrified. I was like, what if I find some shit? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I was terrified. And then I realized, I was like, wait, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> what is this one thing and then what is the other thing? The yeah, idea yeah, yeah. of completion between the two. So that's, the, that's one of the things that the, the project is really about, the racialization of biology and the racialization of genetics. So genetics is, of course, that's what we can go to to see reflections of our past and our history. Well, it's going to show us how we treated each other. Yeah. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like it's that. It's going to be there's going to be some signature. That's not a surprise. I think that some of our concerns are a little bit, they're more racialized than we think they are. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, it's shaping the way that we react to it, that we react to these issues and also the way we produce knowledge. Because we think that we're trapped into something when we're not necessarily because the, and, that's one of the things I take into consideration is the importance of language. Mm. Because in the, in the dissertation, the one of the things that's significant is like races, I try to get people to understand this, the, the, the practice of putting people into racial categories is a political practice. It always has been. Mm-hmm. Racialization, which is the reproduction of those categories, the racialized distinctions between peoples, that is all, that's racism. Race is racism. Races exist because racism exists. They, it, it, it's basically its ideological function. And to miss that is to deny the entire history. And if we keep relying on isolation by distance models, we'll never discuss the history. Because isolation by distance, that's an equilibrium model. That erases anything relevant to history that we're going to be interested in. It's gone. So in, like in, a, in a, a technical sense, we're avoiding history again. And then in a very interesting like qualitative sense we are as well and we can't afford to do that not if this is supposed to be evolutionary genetics so what i'm hearing is actually one it's mind-blowing and blows open so many things within anthropology but also you are using linguistics in some sense 
you are using cultural anthropology and you're using biological. You are about as well-rounded in attacking this from as many points of view as possible. And that gets me to a question. I mean, we've gone through a lot and we want to make sure we keep this short. Yeah. But I actually want to talk about your route to where you are, because I think that's going to be relatable and applicable to a lot of the graduate students or hopeful graduate students who might be listening. Uh, So you're using all these different things, sociology, anthropology, with cultural linguistics. Uh, However, your advisor is Dr. Charles Roseman, who, if I'm not mistaken, is now in the integrative biology department. He's an integrated bio. Which is totally not where you started when it comes nope. to... Nope. <laughs> <laughs> not yes, at all. I know, I know, and I love Charles. We, we share, like, tips on how to smoke meat, uh, because I recently bought it. Yep, but look, <laughs> he takes smoking meat very seriously. It's a whole thing. I'm She's always fine. supportive of it, because I get smoked meat out of it. And it's so good, but this is but where it's I always it. good. It's expert. Anyway, I was wondering if you could take us through this path, because I know it was really difficult. And yeah. it was very crappy, and you had some really terrible experiences. Yeah. And that's the kind of story I think a lot of graduate students might need to hear. Need to hear, and exactly. And the rest Instead of it. Good old throwback, oh, you'll have a great experience. Like, no, you need to be ready. Get ready. <laughs> Honesty so, is the best way. Anyway, take us through it. So, yeah, I, uh, like, uh, my undergrad was at University of Buffalo. I was, I uh, got two bachelors, one in sociology and one in biological anthropology. And then I entered the PhD program, PhD program in biological anthropology there. Hmm. And eventually I ended up doing the dual PhD. I was working in a, a, a dual with that, uh, so biological anthropology and transnational studies. Oh, okay. And the department that I was in for um, bioanth, it's, that's, it's a four-field department. They, their whole framework is making sure that you get exposed to all different kinds of subdisciplines in anthropology. So I've taken economic anthro, political anthro, like I've taken like different, like, I've taken bioarch, I've taken all, comparative primate anatomy. I like well, part of that I think explains how well. Yes, and I think what it explains my like how I can talk about things like all the way around. Yeah. And between that and also the things that I was able to get and glean from not only sociology but what I was taught by different people, members of my community, because my um, so much of what I learned on the social science end of things was really from the things that I read outside of class. Because uh, my godfather, member of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and I did community work in the city of Buffalo, New York, for some years, and I learned a lot of stuff from him and his son, who was a close friend of mine. We were we both went to UB in undergrad together and did organizing together. So a lot of that influenced how I kind of asked questions and what I was curious about. And I remember it was like the first first or second week of classes, my first semester of grad school. And immediately the, my advisor there was like, okay, so what do you want to do for your master's project? What are you interested in studying? What are you interested in doing? And I was like, you know what? I, I want to, I want to study people of African descent. I want to study marginalized peoples, indigenous peoples, people of African descent and colonized populations, like, like, I'm interested in those histories. I am tired of telling old white men stories. I'm not interested. There's a shit ton of those. I'm good. Thanks. So, and I, and in doing that, I kind of probably kind of set myself up. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, um, I'm not good at lying anyway, so. No, it's, fine. it's so much so, easier to tell the truth. You don't have to It's keep- so much easier. I ain't got to keep up with a whole bunch of stuff, right? It's easy. It's like, I got other interesting things I want to, like, use my memory. <laughs> so, so I ended up, my first master's project was on food inequalities in regards to food insecurity 
poverty and then racial residential segregation in Buffalo, New York. Because uh, at the time, the uh, Buffalo, New York was one of the uh, most segregated cities in the United States. I think six most segregated and four mm. poorest. Wow. So that's what I did that first project on. And I got so much bad feedback <laughs> from some people on my committee going like with, with the language that I use or how I refer, refer to um, corner stores. Mm-hmm. In a sense, I just, I'll call them bodegas because it's a bodega. Yeah. Like, it's New York State. What else you like, call them? Also, I'm Afro-Latino. Like, it makes, like, I'm like, and I'm surrounded by people. We all call it a bodega. Yeah. We Afro-Latino call it a bodega. I'm like, that's the kind of feedback. I like ridiculous feedback. Um, committee, but the place, the, the, the UB Dental School gave me some really good feedback. And they took the results and actually took my recommendations, which I was excited about. And they ended up advertising more along the east side of Buffalo, New York, about the different resources for the the dental uh, care office that they had at the university. So a lot, because a lot of people didn't know it existed. They didn't know that kids could get care. So they started changing how they distributed information. So that was like, I, and I, so I was really, I'm, and I'm still very much interested in doing applied work like that. So when I was there, I'm progressing well and everything. I go to defend my proposal and my, the oral defense of my proposal was one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> like it was awful. It was three hours of me listening to five white people tell me how racism doesn't exist anymore in America and how anthropology is no longer racist and how dare I call anthropology racist. Wow. I was ripped into shreds for who I cited. I was told that I didn't cite the right people. Now, mind you, I'm being told this. I was citing, of course, Faye Harrison, Michael Blakey, Alan Goodman. Like, the list goes on. Like, it's the standard people. The standard people. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm I'm like, so I know this is BS. That's the canon of biocultural... Yeah, I'm like, okay, uh, that's literally... Yeah, I was, and then I had one of the people in the committee tell me, like, I had one, one of them asked me, well, are you sure that there are issues, there are actually, like, racial inequality, really racial inequalities with respect to dental uh, health, and, like, because Black people may just not be brushing their teeth, and I'm just like, damn, I'm Black and I brush my teeth, and I know many Black people who brush their teeth, so. Wow, so what did you do? It. No, ma'am. I said, not to mention the fact that, did you check the research that no, I cited that showed that those <laughs> behaviors are not any less likely to be executed or done by people of different cult- like of different racialized backgrounds? That's not Shit. how it works. If I could get my kids to brush your teeth, that would be a win. And a half. <laughs> I'm, like, is he, like, I'm like, okay. Uh, Three so lily like, white kids. They don't want to brush their teeth. She asked me that question in the first, like, five minutes of the old defense. I knew it was a wrap, like, <laughs> after that. So then what did you do? So you're getting I old. answered their question, but also I was very honest about how I answered them. And I, like, cited references the whole way through and was just like, I know y'all not really sitting here asking me this like it makes sense. Like, I let them know that I was not okay with any of it. Yeah. So one professor, he was like, how dare you call anthropology racist? We have a black president now because at the time it was Obama. And I'm just like, we had Obama, like Obama was president. And I was like, what the fuck they got to do with anything? America's still racist. Yeah, yeah. So then horrible yeah. defense, proposal defense. Yeah, it um, would... I am sorry. That's an awful experience. Yeah, it was. That was the first. That was the first defense. <laughs> wow. First time I had to defend something and it went badly. Technically, I passed, but I was told in my uh, my project, my proposal did not adequately account for the biological differences between blacks and white, and that because of that, there are some things that I need to do to change it. So 
that was when I decided that I clearly needed to transfer. <laughs> I tried to see if I could change tracks in the department mm-hmm. to just go cultural and spend the biocultural, just and like just do a biocultural dissertation through a cultural ant. Nobody in the department would touch me, would take me on as a student. It was because they were terrified. Like, because my advisor was is somebody who had enough power in the department. So they couldn't risk it because they were like, it's going to be, it's going to be noticed politically when the best student in the department changes advisors and switches tracks. Wow. So then so where'd you go? I ended up just leaving that institution and I applied to like five different programs, graduate programs, some three, I think, bio and one public health and one sociology. And I got into the social one. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how I ended up in the social department. In the social PhD program here at UAUC, where I was focusing on science technology studies, but they were not too different from the biological anthropologists. So then how did you come by Charles Roseman? Oh, that was hilarious. So <laughs> This sounds like every Charles story I know, right? Every Charles story is hilarious. So I ended up coming across Charles, like funny enough, through one of his students. When I came to UAUC, uh, one of the students that he was taking on, who also came, we were both in the same summer program. Hmm. And he told me about Charles then. So, and, it, and he was like, you got to take a class with him. And it was funny because he was, he was constantly saying, like, you're still an anthropologist. Like, you're still a biological anthropologist. You're clearly a biologist. You're in the wrong. Why are you over there? Like, constantly saying, I'm like, look, bro, I've been through a lot. I'm just trying to get my degree. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get my receipt and get out of here. <laughs> like, and... He was like, I think you would really enjoy taking a class with Charles. I was like, all right, I'm going to keep my eye out. And Charles was, I think he was um, in, at Cal- in Calgary yep. for like a year. Mm-hmm. And by the time, it, like, and when he got back, the first class he taught was an evolutionary theory class, and the quantitative one. So I signed up for that. And that was when I first formally met him. The second week of classes, Charles was like, do you have a mentor? He, we had a conversation. I was like, nope. I was like, people run away from me in most cases. So I was like, oh, you're weird. So, <laughs> so he was like, okay, and we started working together. And that's when we started working together. And I've been working with him ever since. And this is like year three. So he so, really he was basically like my advisor, even though he wasn't. I wasn't he was a completely different department. I'm a completely different program. And it was one of the things that was always funny because people were expecting me to be in one area on campus and I'm like on the other side. <laughs> I'm doing completely different stuff. And, but eventually in the social program, I got hit with the disciplinarity stick. So mm. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't being a good, a good disciplinarian. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> no. I wasn't just doing sociology. So. Oh, that's really? Fun. That's a thing? Yeah. yeah. Cause it's like, and not to mention, like, I'm not just doing sociology. They're terrified that like I was told at my defense, that I had in April that I don't, this just seems like something that's more of like an entire career of what someone would do. And I'm just like, it's just a question. Like I can answer one of these questions. So just like, <laughs> I just showed you how. And I'm like, maybe you feel personally that it would take your entire career, but can't relate. I'm fine. Like I've taken three PhD course, PhD programs worth of coursework. Maybe it sounds like I'm sure of myself because I am, because I read enough. That's a good thing. Maybe. You've had this incredibly tumultuous path and you've had really, I mean, we've all been swearing, so really shitty experiences. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Anyway, if you could give one piece of advice for graduate students or future graduate students who may come up against the same kind of issues you face. Who will. Will come up against. Will. 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 Will.
I would the, that that advice would be remember why you came there, and you don't have to be there to do that work. And there's a difference between the job and the work. You can do work in a number of different ways. So to to be more flexible, be concerned with the question that you have to ask, the thing that you want to study. Because people have you wrapped up in defending entire disciplines and fields, like fields and disciplines need to be defended. That's unnecessary. People are dying. <laughs> we don't have time for that. Big picture. <laughs> Big picture. Don't okay. add, like when you let somebody else frame your state, like your understanding and your viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You are letting them shape your education. And first of all, a PhD, that's supposed to be something that you pursue in the sense that you remember it's your degree. It's not your advisors. It's not anybody in your committees. It's your. That's you great. What do you want? The kind of work you want to do and not forget why you were there in the first place. Because that's the, the reason why I'm still doing this work is because I didn't forget why I was doing it. Why are you doing it? What do you want to do when you're done? Uh, what I want to do when I'm done is I, I want to do research work and teach, but predominantly my main interest is in doing... My, more of my private consulting work. I want to actually run an, a research institute that does community-based participatory research and asset-based community development. So Come in Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, so I, I really want to spend my time applying things and like making interventions like in, in a sense of like adopt a particular like two block radius of neighborhoods for five years and finding different ways to transform that area based on the, the based on what the people in the community want. Yeah. Like those are the things that are needed. teaching people how to be self-sustaining instead of relying on state institutions. Mm, so like those, that's the kind of work that I want to do. Um, like and, and in the sense, I still, and there's still the research work and it's still part of the larger framework of higher education, but is in a sense is purposed differently. Mm. Uh, Cause I'm really exhausted by the fact that I'm like, there's, there's too much research on, on all of this to support exactly what, what a lot of shit is, but we don't have anything with regards on the intervention end mm. and it, it's getting infuriating. And I'm just like, you know, I, I maybe, maybe the thing is, it's just to not ask permission. <laughs> well, Akil, I gotta say, I, I think we can all expect kind of great and amazing things from you. Uh, you have the drive, obviously, and you have the right attitude, obviously, to push through, like, the incredible amount of bullshit you've had to push through. So let's wrap on a high note, or at least a fun note. Let's say a fun note. Um, (laughs) What is your favorite hobby or fun thing to do to help you maintain work-life balance? Honestly? Uh Uh-oh. It's one of the things that's really funny. Like, the stuff that I generally do is, honestly, I love to read. So I'm my apartment is a library, honestly. Mm-hmm. I what are you like, reading for fun right now, then? Okay, here's the sad part. <laughs> <laughs> it's quantitative. The thing I read for fun and not fun to other people. So the thing that I'm reading for fun this week is is on a, it's a book on the speech of uh, Thomas Sakara speeches. Oh, cool. Uh. We are the heirs of the world's revolutions. Speeches from Burkina Faso, Revolution 1983 to 87. So a lot of stuff that I like to read is like historical. I read stuff across all kinds of disciplines. I sit here and probably like read a book on the history of biology just for fun. Yeah, history's like, fun. Do all kinds of random stuff. I'll go down a rabbit hole and just read. I can't tell you how many books. I had this whole period of time where I was just going through physics books. Like, <laughs> so it happens. Like, Wait, we don't, we don't need do to apologize for that. There's if no it's not video games or yeah. if it's not video games or reading, like it's like <laughs> listening to music or something. And one of the things I'm thinking about, I've been doing, thinking about doing recently and trying to prep for um, so I can have some more stuff for downtime is learning to play the violin again. I haven't, nice. I haven't done it in a while. Right so. on. Well, 
Um, we know you're active on Twitter. How can folks get a hold of you? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, active on Twitter. My handle is at hood underscore biologist. Uh, also on Instagram, same handle. But getting a hold of me mainly on Twitter, Twitter is a good way. Like, because I'm usually on Twitter because I use that to find research articles and everything else. <laughs> I feel like you're going to get a whole bunch of new followers after this podcast because this has been an, like a really awesome That's good because that means that, that that's going to be a good thing because those are the followers I'm going to be wanting to have conversations with. Because I be want to have nerdy conversations half the time. But everybody <laughs> don't be that. Like, <laughs> right on. Bro. Well, Chris, how about you? How can oh, you yeah. I'm also all nerd all the time on Twitter. Yes. Chris <laughs> underscore L-Y. And I'm at Kara Akabak. And we've been we a sausage of science. science. <laughs> Shea Keel, you're fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it.